Hey everybody, welcome back once again to another week of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. This podcast is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and the Rebel Alliance Media Network. Two networks, one show, but also many other shows. Go to the Rebel Alliance Media Network at rebelalliancemedia.com. Check out the wide array of podcasts and shows and articles that they've got there for you. I know that uh, that Nate over at, uh, at Rebel Alliance is just bringing out the, uh, the second volume of the Eschatology series, Eschatology 201. Uh, that's a great series that you're going to want to check out. Thanks to everyone who helped uh, participate to make that possible. And of course, visit ezrainstitute.ca. We've got lots of resources, um, sermons, lectures, articles, podcasts, blogs. All of it's designed to proclaim, defend, declare, articulate, and demonstrate that Jesus is king over all the earth, that this is his world, that he holds it together at all, at all times, and that without him, none of this makes sense. So the Ezra Institute and the Rebel Alliance Media, those are your resources. Check us out. Ezra Institute publishes books. We publish a journal three times a year. It's called Jubilee. You can go to EzraPress.ca. Uh, you can read the articles. You can uh, subscribe, and we'll get that delivered to you in hard copy three times a year. It's 25 bucks. That's a triannual subscription. A lot of the voices that you'll hear on this podcast, a lot of the voices and the, uh, the pens that, uh, that you'll read on, a, on these sites, uh, you can find writing articles, and I hope that, uh, that that's a blessing to you as well. EzraPress.ca, go and subscribe to Jubilee. So we're back. Welcome to another episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. It's a great pleasure to introduce a, uh, a new guest on the podcast, at least. Uh, our guest today is Tim Dieppe, and Tim is Fellow for Public Policy here at the Ezra Institute. He's from the UK. He's involved with a group who we're friends with called Christian Concern, uh, where he is also head of public policy. And if you haven't had a chance to hear from Tim yet, we've got a few other resources from Tim coming in the, down the pipe. He was with us for this, this summer's Runner Academy, and Tim and I got a chance to sit down and talk about his area of expertise, which is Islam, and specifically Islamic finance. Tim spent 20 years in the, in the world of finance and fund management, and Tim talks about the way that he got involved in researching and trying to understand Islamic finance. Uh, Tim explains how this is a rival financial system that's set up uh, to have the effect of legitimizing Sharia in society. He explains how Sharia finance products actually cost the end user more than your traditional investment. We talk about the, uh, the whole phenomenon of ethical investing or investing uh, that, that fits in line with Christian principles. And then we get into some of the broader social implications uh, of the prevalence of Islam in society, as well as some starting points for sharing the gospel with our Muslim neighbors. It was a real joy to have Tim with us. I hope that this benefits you. And Tim has an article in a, a recent issue of Jubilee. You can go to the Ezra Press website and find that, uh, find that article on what's wrong with Islamic finance. It's on the issue uh, that we did on money and finance. Tim Dieppe, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's been, it's been great to have you here this week. Thank you. It's been great to be here. I love, love being in Canada. 
Great. Do you come often? No, first time in Canada. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Uh, have uh, are Been you to gonna... the states a few times, but not never to Canada. Are you going to stretch it out into uh, into some sightseeing? Have you been able to do not any this of time, that? Not this not time. Not this time. No, yeah. another time maybe. Okay, good. Well, yeah. welcome back anytime. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'll take you up on that. Yeah, you know, we're grateful you're here. Uh, so, Tim, you are you're, you're with Christian Concern in the UK. That's right. Uh, you're a fellow at the Ezra Institute. Yeah. And one of the things that's that uh, I found most compelling about uh, about your story is uh, your your expertise is in Islam, mm-hmm. and you got into it uh, sort of in a in a way that most people don't get in get interested in studying Islam. Can you just tell us about what uh, what Do got you, know, you interested? Be surprised. And then you know, you, you it? say that you know, as if you're surprised, but actually, I know quite a lot of people. Or I can think of a lot of people who came into a similar way to me and so so I worked in finance as a fund manager and when 9-11 came along I remember sort of watching it almost live on the newsreels because they're in the office and um, and thinking gosh what is what is this worldview that could motivate people to carry out that kind of atrocity with such disrespect for human life and I knew immediately that it was Islamic and I had heard of suicide bombers. I had always assumed that they must be poor, illiterate, easily manipulable people. And on the screen in front of me, I knew this was well-trained, highly educated, well-paid people who were doing this. Hmm. And I need to understand this worldview. I need to get my brain around it. So as one, one of the things that uh, you discovered, you mentioned that you had been working in finance as a fund manager. That's right. And one of the things that uh, that you were asked to do uh, following nine eleven was to uh, either to well, set up so, or to manage. Yeah. So a, so basically, I I I then went away and studied Islam. I then went to read and read a lot of books about Islam, and and researched it and got a much better understanding of Islam than I had had up to that point, and and became more concerned by what I was learning. And and sort of seeing the implications and seeing some of the cultural impacts of Islam as well, mm. not just terrorism, in other words, um, and um, and thinking, gosh, you know, this is actually a much bigger thing than I had ever appreciated up to now, and um, and so I, you know, this this became a sort of concern of mine, and um, and then I came across Islamic finance in the course of this sort of research, and. Um, and I thought, well, I work in finance, I better understand that too, because mm. that might come my way. And, I, and as a financial person, I ought to understand what this is about. So I then sort of started researching Islamic finance and um, and realized that it's it's an artificial system. It's, it's based on a modern radical interpretation of the Quran that says that interest is forbidden for Muslims. Um, this is not really correct or it's not the way it's been interpreted throughout Islamic history neither do or have throughout history most Muslims have borrowed and lent with interest and that's still true today most Muslims in the world today are happy to use interest bearing products usury is another thing and that's forbidden in Islam as it is in Christianity mm-hmm. extortionate interest but not interest in general um, but the radicals um, back in the 1970s or so came up with this idea that the Quran prohibits interest with a deliberate purpose of setting up a rival financial system 
and of having a sort of Sharia version of finance, so to speak, which which can then legitimise Sharia and 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 create a system that um, helps in financial ways and and challenges in financial ways general finance. So, as I was researching that, I came across a book by a chap called Taki Osmani, who is one of the leading global players in Islamic finance and um, is still regarded as like one of the leading players in in, in Islamic finance. And But he's written a book called Islam and Mammon. And um, in this book, the question is raised, do we still need to wage jihad in a country where we can freely build mosques and preach Islam? In other words, a country like Britain or Canada. Right. Right. And And he says in answer to that question, he quotes a verse from the Quran, and says, killing should continue until the jizya tax is paid. That's a subjugation tax imposed on non-Muslims. It's a very right. radical um, uh, system, again, where non-Muslims pay a, a very oppressive poll tax once they've completely submitted to Islamic rule. And um, he says, killing should continue according to the Quran until um, the jizya is paid. And then he says, it doesn't say that killing should continue until you can freely build mosques. And preach Islam. Okay, so it's uh, there's a cultural and a social push to to see Islam absolutely uh, dominate. dominate. Yeah, being free to preach, you know, preach Islam and build mosques is not enough. We've yeah, got to being, absolutely being integrated we've into got to society. Is not nom- to, dominate not the, the whole society and impose a, a subjugation tax on everyone else who's not a Muslim. And this uh, this is coming from leading uh, current. Uh, Muslims in uh, in the world of finance. Yes, well, Taki Osmani has put that in print. I don't think others have. Okay, um, sure. But he has, and he was at that time chairman of the HSBC Sharia Advisory Board, and he has been on a number of other leading um, Western financial institution advisory boards as well. Um, I was shocked by that. I I thought, gosh, you know. This is this is unbelievable. How how does HSCBC get themselves in a position where they have something like that on their advisory board, who and they're paying him money when he, this is clearly what he thinks? Um, and and how is it that the Financial Times is on, constantly quoting him as as an expert on Sharia finance? And this is what he thinks. What what are they doing? Are they mad? Um, and 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 so I wrote to a friend at HSBC and said, "Do you realise this chap's on your advisory board?" and do you think that's appropriate? And he quite rightly passed that on to the compliance department at HSBC and um, then told me that the compliance department had a bit of a fit and basically <laughs> got rid of him pretty quickly. Okay. Um, um, so, so there we were. But then, of course, what you know, was evident was that his son was on that advisory board and stayed on that advisory board. And the other imams on that board, I'm sure, must have known at least known, if not sympathised, with Takiyazmani's teaching and thinking. Right. Um, and this, you know, there's no question that these Muslims must know where he comes from. They must know it. Um, so there we are. You know, so so they, five years later, they did close that business down. Um, but that opened my eyes to what's really going on here. This, this Islamic finance thing is intended to legitimise Sharia law in the area of finance, and it sort of worked, right? Because Western financial institutions have bought into it, right? Even the British government has become, back in 2014, the first 
non-Muslim government in the world to issue a government Sharia bond. What What is unique about uh, about a Sharia bond or a Sharia fund or Sharia finance? You mentioned the... Uh... The, ban the, on interest. the misinterpretation in that in the ban on interest. So the ban on interest is the main thing, but that, even that is a con because actually it's interest in disguise. So so they don't call it interest, but really interest is underneath it somewhere. So for example, you can see um, Islamic mortgages advertised, and it's like a five percent fixed rent or a variable rent at four point five percent or something. Okay, and they call it rent instead of. Interest instead of interest, right? And right. It, basically, it's the same thing, right? And it, and so it's it's pretty obvious. And the, the Sharia bond is you know paying money as equivalent to interest as well, but they just you know dress it up in in language and in some some legal entities that that say therefore this is no this is not really interest. This is therefore Sharia compliant and pay lots of Muslim advisors to certify yes this is Sharia compliant. So who were. Uh... Who who is behind? Uh, who who stands to benefit from a Sharia, a Sharia compliant uh, financial product? And if it's if it's the same old mortgage with a, a different term, yeah. uh, why are people right? Who, so who who is going for them? I guess. Okay. Okay. So there is a market for Sharia finance. Okay. Um, so we can come to why that is right. Beneficiaries, in, in the true purest economic sense, are the advisors who sign off and say this is Sharia compliant to get paid to do so. The Muslims themselves who are buying these products are actually paying an increased fee for the complexity of the product. So they're actually disadvantaged, right? right. Because they're, right. They're, there's, a, there's an added complexity in the Sharia products in order to avoid being simple interest right. so the end of some user. kind and, and all to have the Sharia compliance going into it. So they end up actually being penalised and paying for a more complicated product um, in the mix. Um, why they do that? Because they're persuaded by their imams or whatever that you should have a Sharia compliance or they want to be particularly Islamic in that went, or they buy into the whole ideology of it. We want Sharia more generally and therefore we want to do this. Yeah, there's a whole mixture of things in there. There's also the aspect where although the interest is the focus. There's also in terms of funds and things, things like not investing in alcohol or gambling um, and or, or in financial products bearing interest and things like that. And people like to be ethical, and so mm -hmm. Sharia mm -hmm. funds are seen as an ethical type of fund. Right. And, and it's, that's attractive to Muslims and sometimes other people um, for that kind of reason as well. Right, right. But then you say that the end user, the, actual, the, per, the person who purchases the thing, is actually... Uh, paying more in terms of their fees. It's, uh, yes, that's right. So there are Muslims who criticize this. There are Muslims who say, uh, this, is, this is A, this, this is against the spirit of Islam because it's A, it's deceptive, it's claiming not to be interested when it is, and B, it's disadvantaging Muslims because they're paying for a, a, an additionally complex product which they shouldn't have to. It kind of begs the question, I, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian, mm -hmm. I know other Christians who are involved in finance. Is there a uniquely Christian approach to finance are there uh, are there distinctly christian financial products could that be a thing so um so i used to work in ethical fund management um and so i so i understand the whole area of ethical finance and this is about investing in companies that are trying to do something good in the world and we 
So there's a number of ways of doing ethical investment. One is to avoid doing bad things. And traditionally, that is arms, alcohol, tobacco, and pornography, and um, you know, animal experimentation or other you know, embryo experimentation, mm-hmm. those kind right. of things. Um, you, you would avoid those and invest in pretty much anything else. That's one way to do it. And there are funds out there that do that. And, and those kind of ethical criteria we'd generally agree with, probably. We might have some slight differences of opinion on one or two of those sure, things. Sure, level of scruple might differ. Yes, but, uh... exactly. And, and then, yeah, and in fact, how the scruple works, just to go into the fine detail of that, is you're going you're gonna to have to measure how much of the turnover it is, right? Because, you know, we're living in a fallen society here. So I might buy a newspaper from an outlet that sells pornographic magazines. Now, is that wrong? Well, I'd argue, no, it's not necessarily, right? But if I went and bought the pornographic magazine, it would be, right? Now, let's turn that into another situation. I might work for a printing company, and the printing company, the, the books that I'm involved with aren't pornographic, but they might have some pornographic books that they print. Right. Or materials that they print. Is that is that something a Christian shouldn't do? Well, a Christian shouldn't be involved in a company that only does pornography. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't be involved in production of pornography either then depending how much of the business it is, I'm not yep. going to be legalistic about it, but once it's becoming most of that business that is pornography, the, probably the Christian is saying, well, I don't want to be part of this business now. And there's a line somewhere before it gets to that level where the Christian would say, hang on a minute, this isn't what I want to support. Um, so bearing all those things in mind, you're going to invest in companies and say, well, you know, this supermarket, less than 10% of its turnover is alcohol and pornography and so on, and therefore... This is okay to invest in, whereas another business, it's more than that, and it's not okay. So you're having to draw those kind of, make those kind of judgments all the time, right? Um, yeah. In this mix, so but this that's the standard way of doing ethical investment, and the other way of doing it is doing is what's called positive investing, where you say, right, we actually don't just want to not invest in bad things, we want to pick companies that are doing something good for the world, and the, of course the fashion is environmental in that sense. Yes. So we want to invest yes. in solar panels or wind farms or um, or these kind of things or water purification um, or, or health companies or education companies um, and companies that are clearly doing something positively beneficial for the world. And because and, and we see that that as a good thing and I want my money to be used in a good way. And, and that that's a fair enough way of investing as well. And, and Christians would want to support and be involved in that. But then we wouldn't want to say that, you know, by the same token, Christians shouldn't either invest in, let's say, banks and, you know, or, or, or let's say pharmaceutical companies or whatever, you know, neither should they not want to work in those kind of businesses either. So I don't want to say that those things are necessarily bad by the fact we're trying to prioritise these ones. So there's always a debate right. to have about all these kind of things. Yeah, of course. Of course. Is there... Uh... Or could there be demonstrated a, a link between Sharia, these Sharia finance products and terrorist activities? Okay, so the, um, so the, the thing is that there is a cat, right, which is one of the pillars of Islam where they pay 2.5%. You know, so an individual gives 2.5% of their income to Islamic charities. Mm-hmm. And then for Islamic businesses, they ought to be, or that you know, some of them would, say we ought to give 2.5% of our income to Islamic charities or Islamic causes in some way or other as well. And you can quite easily find fatwas online that say that jihad is a valid 
um, place for Zagat to go to. Right, right. Um, so, so this is not a direct line. Right. Okay, but indirectly, uh, there is Zakat involved in Islamic finance, and likely some of it might be going to fund that kind of activity. Zakat is alms giving. Yes. Right. You've uh, you've been here with us at the Runner Academy, giving a couple of presentations on uh, the, the uh, some background information on Islam as well as the the social implications of it, and, mm. uh, and that's been really great. What a couple of questions that uh, that I noted down during your your lectures that I didn't uh, didn't get a chance to you ask. Save them up to I catch me out. Now, yeah, yeah, saving them up. I yeah, can get okay. uh, get a fuller <laughs> fuller response now that we're away from the crowds. Okay. Okay. Um, you you mention and it's uh, it's been mentioned here and there and from several corners that uh, for political reasons. Uh, the dangers being posed to society sort of in the name of Islam or by people who identify as Muslims right. uh, are being underreported or being spun in the news because we have in in the liberal West we have have an interest in making right. making for friends with, is, with Islam for whatever reason right. And I'm just curious how how that extends, or if that extends, or what uh, if there's a difference in response by um, intelligence agencies or people people who have other interests than the than the po- the politically correct interest. Right. Um, so, in terms of okay, so I'm going to start with the media first of all, and. Um, some media outlets have banned the term Islamic terrorism. Right. Um, we haven't or, done that here on our media outlet. <laughs> we haven't. No, on this one. Yeah, okay, fine. Um, but some of them have banned that sort of association. Saying you can't, you know, obviously, Islam is a religion of peace, they say, and therefore mm-hmm. it's offensive to say that it's anything connected with Islam, even though they're Muslims, but they wouldn't say that either. They would try and avoid saying that these are Muslims. Right, um, and and so that's a problem because you're immediately trying to sort of say you know you deny what what the real issue is and what the real worldview behind it is. If you don't understand the worldview behind it, then you've got no way of tackling it. Really, that's that's such an important point. Um, so so you know that's the problem. But then in terms of intelligence agencies, um, I have heard that some of them are adopting some kind of similar approaches, which is very concerning. Then because you know again, if you can't tackle the worldview. Um, you can't really do something about it. So in the UK, um, there were some folks in, I think it was Scotland Yard now, who, who um, I'm trying to remember the story now, but a, a police, a police um, intelligence person resigned from the force and complained that other colleagues of hers were joking about FGM and Sharia and things like that and mm. clearly thought that these were not problems and um, and that was acceptable um, within the intelligence area that she was working in, um, and you know these people being recruited as supposedly moderate Muslims. I'm not denying that there are moderate Muslims, but you know what I mean, and and then um, and then they're in the security services, and then these people are not doing it. The other, and the other story that I know quite well um, is a chap in the UK police who was doing a fantastic job prosecuting forced marriage type of cases and things like that, and FGM, mm-hmm. and um, and he got stopped 
and the, the Crown Prosecution Service tried to drop his cases. He had won awards. He'd won awards in the police for these wow. kind of prosecutions, doing the first one and this kind of thing. And um, and they're trying to sort of push him out of the force for being implicitly incorrect and, and pursuing cases that they don't want pursued. So this is this is a serious problem, I think, in, in some of those areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you mentioned that uh, at the beginning of, of this that the the goal the goal of Islam the stated goal and uh, Taki Asmari had uh, had restated this in uh, in his own way more recently is the the domination of yeah. the Islamic worldview the subjugation of other worldviews Correct. as evidenced by the jizya and other other things yes yeah um, for uh, for other areas of society um, correct me if I'm wrong but I, I believe that uh, the uh, the the goal the the sort of personal personal holiness for for a Muslim right. looks like imitating Muhammad's life Correct. yeah down to yeah. like in very small particular detail is that right yes depending how how devout they are yes right right um, I guess what uh, what are some of the some of the social implications for that kind of Worldview that uh, that understanding of a pursuit of of holiness or uh, or devoutness. Uh, what are, what are the broader implications of, uh, well, of that? Well, I, I'm, I don't know if you go. This is the line you want to go down, but the burqa sort of obviously sort of shows itself or is, is very obvious sort of manifestation of this kind of thing, and um, it, that's a fairly radical view that women should wear a face veil not just a veil over their heads mm-hmm. and and cover their mouth and, and most of their face and um, you see them on the streets very commonly in London now and even more commonly in some other towns where um, and areas where there's a very strong Muslim presence mm. and um, I think it's a symbol of oppression basically I think it, it, um, it intimidates other people I think it makes it feel like you're not allowed to talk to this woman or, you, or and it makes it difficult to talk to them if you do try and talk to them. I think it is a barrier to integration in society um, and a barrier to trust because you can't see the facial expression. Mm. Um, and so for the protection of women and the advancement of integration in society, I would want to ban the burqa in, in society, which as has been done in a number of other countries, including right. in one or two Islamic countries as well. Um so um, I think this is a fairly simple win answer to help this issue. And I haven't even mentioned the security aspect, of, sure. which has happened. We've had in, in, one, in a major store in central London, John Lewis's, um, some guys went in in burkas and robbed it. And, of course, the security cameras have got no way of recognising who that is. So, um, so for all those reasons, I, I would ban that. I guess, uh, f- finally, Tim, if we, if we can... Uh pivot just a little bit uh, as 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 Christians as people who believe that the gospel transforms all of life every area of life and can transform every and any life um, what uh, what is the what is the strategy or the the Christian response um, as we engage increasingly with uh, with Muslims more and more we have yeah. We have the opportunity to uh yeah. to to rub shoulders with them in the street. Yes, yeah, so I think that um 
basically Christians need to understand some basic Islamic apologetics and have confidence in that. There's 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 a problem that that most Christians don't feel they know enough about Islam to challenge it, and therefore they don't challenge it. And then well, the, the experience of Muslims is that they don't meet Christians who are confident enough to challenge their faith, and they think that therefore Christians are weak and don't know what and don't have confidence in what they believe, mm. and they they feel like I'm confident and I know what I believe and the Christians don't. Right. And, and so, right. you know, we need to see that happen. And it's not very difficult to do. And the easiest um, thing that any Christian can really challenge them on is why would you not follow Jesus over Muhammad? Right. Jesus rose from the dead for a start. Muhammad is still dead. Okay, Jesus uh, was born of a virgin, which is actually in the Quran. And Muhammad had no unusual birth. Jesus healed lots of people. Again, even the Quran says that. Muhammad hurt a lot of people. Who would you rather follow? Jesus treated women well, had them as some of his closest followers and the first witnesses to the resurrection, all that kind of thing, and taught them. Muhammad abused women and had slave women and sex slaves and all of that kind of thing. Who would you rather follow? Um, Jesus never hurt anybody. Muhammad hurt and led people into wars and all of that kind of thing. Um, Jesus advanced freedom and love and said, love your enemies. Muhammad said, kill your enemies. You can go on and on like this. It's not very difficult. Um, and and most Muslims won't have ever thought of it in those terms. They'll think they'll initially think, oh, we have Jesus as a prophet. We say, well, surely he's rather better than the prophet. He's, you know, he, surely he's better than Muhammad. Mm-hmm. In, in your experience, are, uh, are the Muslims that you, you speak with, they're happy to talk about, uh, about their faith and questions about uh, these, yes, they these are. comparisons? Yes, yeah, they they tend to not be shy about it. They tend to see it as something that people ought to be allowed to talk about and be able to talk about. And they tend to be up for debates as a bit of a sort of that kind of culture in in the Arabic world of debates and discussion sometimes. And um, and they they are happy to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, do talk about it. Bring it up. Yeah. And the other simple questions are: How did you become a Muslim? Mm-hmm. What difference does prayer make in your life? You know, what what's um do you, have you read the Quran in a language you understand? Right. Um, right. Just to get a basic understanding, you know, how often do you go to mosque? Easy questions to ask, um, to help you understand them, but also to maybe mean that they'll get a reciprocal question back about church, about how you became a Christian, about what difference prayer makes in your life, and this kind of thing, and then you're starting to have a meaningful conversation. It's terrific. Tim, thanks very much for being here. It's been a pleasure to have you. Great, thank you, Ralph. It's been enjoyed that. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please take a moment to like, share, and rate the podcast on social media and your favorite listening platform. For more resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.